tormented by dreams of his cruel taskmasters, he woke with a start. Contrary to his confession just hours before, he isn't a new man. He is still the convict who spent 19 years hard labour for stealing. So in the dark of night, he crept into the dining room of the house and hurriedly shoved the fine silver into his knapsack. Is anyone there? More than one, apparently. (laughs) The priest, the priest who had graciously welcomed this filthy man into his his home, feeding him and providing a bed, was making his way down the hall to find out what the noise was about, face to face with this ungrateful wretch. The priest was knocked unconscious and the thief escaped into the night. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. As the guards returned the thief to the priest the following morning, Jean Valjean was once again confronted by the man he had offended. But perhaps what was more confronting was the unexpected mercy he received from him. Well, not only did the priest release him from the guards, but added the silver candlesticks to the bag of treasure he had stolen. Why are you doing this? The puzzled man asked. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now, I give you back to God. Well, the lead character of Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, was a man who had received mercy. He knew mercy. See, mercy, by definition, is the compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender or an enemy. Well, perhaps you're familiar with the story. Perhaps it awakens in you an awareness of the mercy that we have received in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're continuing our look into the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 20, which is a story of incredible mercy. So why don't you open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 5, If you don't have your Bibles, uh, you can read along on the screen, but I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. You need to check that what is being said from the front is true. Mark 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. 
when he saw Jesus from a distance. He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Well, as we saw right back at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, that this book is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in one sense... Every sermon that you hear at Redeemer from the book of Mark, no matter who is preaching, is going to point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. And we'd be wrong to do otherwise. But Mark's purpose in writing is not simply to share information. He also intends for his readers to respond to what he's writing about to respond to this great news that Jesus is the saviour of the world. So each time we read a passage from scripture, it's worth us asking, how does the author hope that we will respond to what we've just read? Well, as we look through Mark 5 now, I hope that you'll be able to see two points that I believe Mark wants us to see and respond to. They are mercy given and mercy told. So mercy given and mercy told. Well, in order to better understand Jesus' mercy in this passage, we first need to ask ourselves, who are these demons? And secondly, who is this man? Well, the Gospel of Mark is filled with strange things. I mean, we see violent storms calmed by a simple word, Miraculous healings, demon-possessed people, even raising people from the dead. I mean, the skeptics and the liberals will tell us that these aren't true. They're just, they're just stories or analogies to make a spiritual point. They'll say that demon possession, for instance, is just 
a first century term for what we now know in our great enlightened understanding that is mental illness. And of course it can be controlled with medicine. You see, for most of us, demons and immediate healings are so far from our own experience of life that we struggle to understand them. So it's not every day that we see a demon-possessed man walking through the shopping mall. And I'll be the first to admit that my first-hand experience of demons is very little. But just because we haven't seen something ourselves doesn't make it any less true. We all believe in angels. Now Mark doesn't leave room for us to think of demon possession as simply mental illness. That's in verse 1. He, just, he refers to the man as a man with an evil spirit. It seems like insanity was a side effect of that, but the root cause was the evil spirit. So what does the rest of the Bible then tell us about demons? Who are they? Where do they come from? Well, quite simply, demons are fallen angels, the strongest of which is Satan. So we see this most clearly in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 to 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth, and his angels with him. So Satan was not alone in his insurrection against the Most High God. I mean, according to Jude verse 6, these angels did not keep their positions of authority. So when God made angels, he gave them power, he gave them glory, he gave them positions of authority. But they extended themselves beyond what they had been given. So in essence, they loved their own glory more than they loved God's glory. They wanted to be in the place of God. Well, furthermore, the Bible teaches us that these fallen angels hate Jesus and his followers and they're seeking worshippers for themselves. As Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears wrote in their book Doctrine, they perform powerful signs, wonders and miracles that can deceive people into thinking they are equal with God. Practically, this means that there are incredibly powerful demons with names such as Baal, Chemosh, Molech, Brahman, Mother Earth, Mammon and Aphrodite that are wrongly worshipped by multitudes as gods. We see this throughout the Bible. Demons are presented as gods who are seeking worship. So Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 says... They sacrificed to demons which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your father did not fear. And Psalm 106, verse 37, speaks of how the Israelites worshipped the idols of the nations around them, and in doing so, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Most explicitly, Paul says that the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. So it's little wonder then that God's first commandment to his people, the Israelites, 
is to say, you shall have no other gods before me. See, the Lord has powerful enemies who masquerade as angels of light to deceive people into thinking they are worthy of worship. They are powerful angels who desire their own glory more than God's glory. And they want the worship of people, worship that is rightly given to God alone. Well, that's who Jesus meets in the passage this morning. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He knows exactly who these demons are. The reason he asks, what is your name, was for our benefit, not for his. For these guys had rebelled against Jesus long ago in a cosmic battle that happened in the heavenly realms. See, that explains why they were so clear on who Jesus was. Did you notice how they refer to Jesus in verse 7? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. What striking clarity. <laughs> I mean, if, I, if only the disciples had been able to see this truth 11 verses earlier in the middle of the storm. Well, that's who the demons are in this passage. But what about this man? I mean, what's his story? How did he get to be like this? Perhaps a a common assumption that you might have made that I know I initially made when we're reading this story is that that this guy is a victim. We subconsciously think that these evil demons just came along and, and got the better of him, poor fellow. But Satan is not responsible for everything that's evil in the world. The the story goes that the Satan was sitting on the steps with his head in his hands, shaking his head, and, and the Lord came along and said, What's the matter? And Satan replies, They are all blaming me for everything. <laughs> I mean, make no mistake, sin is sin. We need to own our sin. We need to recognize that our sin, my sin, is the primary reason for the difficulties that I face in my life. Shifting blame to Satan didn't help Adam and Eve, and it certainly won't help us. See, it's not Satan's fault that you had an argument with your spouse last night. It's your sin. It's not Satan's fault that you had a car accident last week. You just weren't looking. And it's definitely not Satan's fault that your children aren't sharing their toys. It's their sin, which incidentally they got from you. See, now Mark doesn't tell us, but this man was probably at one stage a sane, respectable member of the community. He would have been the pride of his parents. But like everyone else, this man was a child of Adam. Outside of Christ... He is living for himself and his own glory. So it's likely that he wanted something else. Possibly possibly power or extra superhuman strength. And that's what the demons were offering him in exchange for his worship. Well, if that's true, it certainly wouldn't be the first time a fallen angel has tempted someone with offers of power in exchange for worship. Do you remember back in Mark 1 when Jesus was baptized, he was then taken out into the desert and tempted by Satan. 
Well, in Luke's Gospel, we, we get let in on, in on the conversation. And Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So, if you worship me, it will all be yours. See how tempting it is? No, this man is no victim. He was simply following his self-centered rebellion against God and was reaping the consequences. He did not obey the first commandment to have no other gods before God. He worshipped himself and in turn ended up worshipping fallen angels. He had fallen to the temptation of power and it cost him his family, his community, his sanity and his health. He gave it all and got nothing in return. He's not all that different from us, is he? Have you ever felt the temptation for more power? Maybe in your workplace? I mean, it could be as subtle as a desire for more respect from your colleagues. Or it's, comes, it maybe comes in the form of a desired promotion. Or a more, move to a more strategic department in the company. But at what cost? At what cost will you take that? You see, an increased salary, an increased responsibility... It also means increased time away from your family. It means less time for pursuing spiritual growth. Less time to serve others. And less time to enjoy life outside of work. See, it's a subtle and a gentle temptation that will lure you in little by little. Now don't misunderstand me. Work is good. It's a gracious gift of God. But when it becomes what we live for, when we find our self-worth in our work or in the power that we feel at work, then we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image of professional success and status. We have worshipped an idol. And the cost is great. In the end, the company will own you and you are left with nothing of eternal significance. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? John 8:36. Well, perhaps for you though, the temptation for power comes at home. It could it could manifest itself in a domineering authoritarian approach to your children or even your spouse you will want more and more to control those in your family, for them to meet your demands on cue when you ask it. And when it doesn't happen, you explode with anger. Or you manipulate and deceive to get what you want. No, we're, we're not unlike this demon-possessed man. And But for the grace of God, we would be exactly where he was. But there is a way in which, as Christians, we are not like him. See, as Christians, we are not and will never be subject to the power of demons in the same way that this man was. So according to Ephesians 1, verse 13, those who have put their faith 
in Christ, have heard the gospel of salvation, are filled with and marked by the Holy Spirit. As such, there is no way that Christians could ever be dominated by fear and by the power of demons in the way that this man was. For Christ has triumphed over all the rulers and the principalities of the air through the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't ever meet opposition from demons. They are alive, they are active in our world and they hate those who follow Jesus. So don't be uninformed. But it does mean that the one who is in us is more powerful than the one who is in the world. And we will never, ever be separated from the love of Christ. So we've seen who these demons are, the fallen angels with great power who are seeking worshippers for themselves. And we've seen this man who is possessed by lots of demons is not so much a poor victim but is rather living out the consequences of his natural rebellion against God. Well, all of this begs the question then. And I think the answer to this question is the key to understanding the point of this passage and its appropriate response. And the question is this. Why did Jesus heal him? Did you ask that in your small groups this week? I mean, what's the motivation for Jesus to remove the demons from this guy? It's the question that Jean Valjean asked. Why are you doing this? Well, I think the answer for us is found in verse 19. Jesus said to the man, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, Jesus wants his mercy to be told. That's our second point this morning. Mercy told. He wants objects of his mercy to tell others how great his mercy is. Just this past week, uh, I was buying a new kettle for us. And I had one of those funny Dubai experiences where you're in a shop and you're talking to a salesman who doesn't really know the product that he's trying to sell you. So I'm standing there with, with shelves full of kettles in front of me and he picks up possibly the ugliest looking kettle on the shelf and he says, what about this one? It's got an on-off switch. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. I said, well, that's an important feature on a kettle. <coughs> you see, it's one thing for someone to say that God is merciful. And it's true. But when that person has experienced firsthand that mercy from Christ, he'll speak about it in a different way. Maybe his eyes will light up with the truth of it, or there'll be an edge in his voice, belying the excitement in his heart. Whatever it is, the point is, one who has received mercy has much to tell. But the one who has not experienced God's mercy in their life has little more to speak of than a salesman selling an ugly kettle. Well, how about you? Have you been given mercy from God? 
Have you recognized your need for mercy? See, if you're here this morning, you would say that you are not a Christian, but that you are beginning to recognize or see in your life that there is a need for mercy, that things are not all okay, then that just might be that the Lord is prompting you. My friend, endless mercy is available to us in Jesus Christ. Mercy that never fails. Mercy that is new every morning. See, if, if Jesus has the power to heal a demon-possessed man from hundreds or even thousands of demons, and if he has the power to forgive sin, sin that has been against an eternal and holy God, then he most certainly has the power to forgive you and extend to you mercy instead of eternal judgment. Well, if he is prompting you this morning, if you feel the Lord's awareness of your need for mercy, of your sin, then repent. Repent of your sin. Accept his mercy. There's no other way. There's no other way that we can account for our sin against God unless Christ pays for it. But why would Jesus do this? I mean, why would he offer you or or I or anyone mercy instead of judgment? Because it brings him glory. Did you see the response to the man's testimony in verse 20? And all the people were amazed. See, God, God wants his mercy to be known specifically by the Gentiles. I mean, that's why Jesus was there in the first place. They didn't get lost in the storm in the middle of the night. They landed exactly where Jesus had planned for them to land. He wanted the Gentiles to know of his mercy. Well, it it wouldn't be the first time that God has done something so, so that his name would be known amongst the Gentiles. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see that God's motivation for doing incredible, world shaking things is so that the glory of his name will be known throughout the whole earth. I mean, that was why he chose the insignificant and small nation of Israel to bear his name. It was why he repeatedly refrained from destroying them when they disobeyed. It was why he disciplined them by sending them into exile. It's why he sent his son to die on a Roman cross and three days later to rise again. And it was why Jesus commissioned the church us, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, to go and tell the whole world about him. You see, there's nothing glorious about the people God chooses to save. That's just the point. He chooses people who not only have nothing going for them in terms of moral obedience, but he chooses people like Jean Valjean like the, the Gerasene demoniac. You see, I mean, to the Jewish mind, this demon-possessed man had nothing going for him. He was probably the most unworthy person to be saved. He was an unclean Gentile. 
He was filled with unclean spirits, living amongst the unclean tombs and surrounded by those unclean pigs. I mean, he chose people like this man who are in active rebellion against him and have no hope of ever being restored to their God-given purpose. He chooses rebellious, self-centered, hard-hearted, arrogant sinners like you and I. Why? Because it displays God's mercy all the more brightly. See, we're all in need of God's mercy. And his mercy is given to us most powerfully, and indeed the only way, in Jesus' death and his resurrection. You see, that's where we see most clearly how much mercy we need. That's where our sin is most clearly shown for us. You see, it's in the death of Jesus on the cross. My sin against an infinitely perfect, holy and eternal God was what put the eternal Son of God to death. It was only Him who could fully absorb the wrath of God that was rightfully mine because of my sin. The point is, my sin and the depravity of it, the depth of my sin is not determined by me. It's determined by the one who I have offended. It's determined by God. But Jesus' resurrection shows that he has dealt with my sin completely, eternally. And instead of eternal judgment, he's given me eternal life. This is the glorious grace to us in Jesus Christ. This is the compassion that Christ is pointing towards in this story with a demon-possessed man. And the point for us is also to tell others of this mercy. Well, what are the practical ways in which we, as Christians, as receivers of his mercy, can tell others about it? Well, oddly enough, the first thing that we need to do is to tell ourselves of his mercy. See, we're a forgetful lot. We forget where we have come from. We begin to think that maybe we're actually okay (laughs) as we look at some of the work of the Spirit in our lives and begin to attest it to our own merit. Um, and, And we forget what Christ has done for us. But we need to remind ourselves of the grace that has been given to us. We need to speak the gospel to ourselves daily so that we remember our constant need for mercy. And there are particular times when we need to remember his mercy. It is when life is difficult. It is when we fall in sin. It is when we are struggling with chronic pain. It is when temptation is strong and we just want to give up. That's when we need to remind ourselves that his mercy is new every morning. In Lamentations 3 verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. So we need to remind ourselves of his mercy. And then we need to share that with others. We need to tell others. Now, if your personality isn't very extrovert, you know, that your tendency would be rather to, to speak to someone about God's mercy in your life, you'd rather just sit there and smile at them and beam telepathic messages of God's mercy <laughs> across the room. Well, let me just say, don't underestimate the effectiveness of words. Simple but true. Even words that are spoken quietly can be a powerful testimony to God's mercy in your life. God can take care of the rest. See, our call is simply to be faithful, to share the greatness of his mercy to us in Jesus. But the point is, it needs to be spoken. We need to share his mercy by saying it, by telling it to others. Look for those opportunities and take them. Be bold. But words that are not backed up by our actions will be received as empty words. Jean Valjean's life in the rest of the movie was not a life lived for himself any longer. He had received mercy and as a result it changed the way in which he treated others. He was merciful to those in his employment. Well, as Christians, we have received much greater mercy than a bag of silver from from an offended priest. No, we have been forgiven by the Most High God for our offences against him. Therefore, our lives should reflect all the more the reality of this mercy that has been given to us. So consider the times in the week where it would be hardest for you to show mercy. Maybe it's driving on the road. That person is coming up behind you, flashing their lights. You're already doing the speed limit. You can't move over. Come on. Can't you see? I'm driving safely here. You're not. Be merciful. Avoid the temptation to flash lights and put on brakes. Just move over when you can. And be merciful. Or maybe it's a specific colleague at work who just riles you up. Or a student at your college. Maybe it's at the checkout at Carrefour. You've had a long day. And that person barges in in front of you and their trolley is full. (laughs) Showing mercy is showing to others a kindness and a compassion even when they have offended you, even when they are in the wrong. It's this kind of mercy that we speak of and that we back up with our actions. And why do we do it? It's for the purpose of bringing glory to Christ. Jesus is our most 
powerful example of mercy. For we are the ones who have offended him in much more ways than someone barging in front at a checkout line. We have offended Christ much greater and yet he has given us incredible mercy. The least we can do is honour him by being merciful to others. Well, Jesus graciously left the region of the Gerasenes at the request of the people there. But before he did, he left behind him an object of his mercy and the command to go and tell how he had been given mercy. Well, Jesus has physically left the earth for the time being, but he has left behind him numerous objects of his mercy. And with us, the command to go into all the world and preach the good news. As Christians, as objects of his mercy, the response to this passage is clear. Tell others of how we have received mercy so that Christ's name will be glorified in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might make more fully known to us the extent of your mercy. Lord, that we would remember in Christ's death and resurrection that it was our sin that required eternal punishment, but that our sin has been dealt with completely and that we have been given new life, eternal life, filled with incomprehensible joy in your presence. Lord, we did not deserve your mercy and indeed that is why it is mercy. So Father, we pray that as the reality of this truth, of, of the reality of your mercy in our lives sinks deep into our heart, Lord, that you would throw fuel on the fire of our worship of you such that it overflows in an unbounded telling of your mercy and an unbounded giving and displaying of your mercy to others for the magnification of the glory of Christ to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.